Welcome to the Dead Pixel Podcast. This is the podcast home for all the people that work in the archival and production world. The artists and technicians that keep production going long after the shoot is finished. We're engineers, colorists, restorers, administrators, cinematographers, editors, animators, designers, and filmmakers. We work in both sound and visual, in analog and digital. The one thing that we share in common is that we spend some, if not all, of our time working in dark rooms, working alone. Finally, we get to share our stories here on the Dead Pixel Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Dead Pixel. Um, I am Ryan Hullings, and with me, as always, is Lee Klein. Hi, Lee. Hi. And this week, I'm doing the intro because we're talking about sound, uh, finally. And I'm very excited to be talking about sound with John Polito, the founder and head engineer of Audio Mechanics, a premier restoration and mastering facility out in L.A. Uh, hey, John. Thanks Hello. for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor. And uh, I'm really excited to get to talk about sound because it's you know always something I try to steer conversations towards and no one wants to talk about it as much as me but I <laughs> and it always comes after the picture conversation which is sad but true yeah it's always that totally um but anyway uh this is exciting because audio mechanics is one of the facilities that I'm always happy to get a restoration from when we're releasing a movie um I know you do music as well but this is kind of a movie podcast so I'm going to steer it that way but if you want to talk to you know, rock and roll, I'm game. Sure. Uh, so anyway, uh, tell me a little bit about Audio Mechanics, just broad strokes. It's founded, you know, a long time ago in the Sonic No Noise days, what, like yeah. early 90s? Yeah, yeah. So I actually got my start at Sonic Solutions. And, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was there. Uh, I was with them in 87, right out of college. So I, was, uh, I went to Stanford and I studied at the Computer Music um, Research Lab known as Karma. And, um, and, you know, two weeks before graduating, I had no prospects and knew that <laughs> dad wasn't going to let me come home. <laughs> so he was like, I'm sending you to school, but your day you graduate, you're on your own. So, um, and I got an email from the head of the department saying, hey, there's this company in San Francisco, startup company, and they're looking for people. And I recommended you. And that was Sonic Solutions. No so way. Yeah, yeah. So I went and interviewed there, and and it was gosh, I was like employee number four or something, and wow. and um, and so I learned to use the Sonic Solution system on it was all Sun Microsystems workstations, and I you know became good at it, and I became head of their service, and that's really where I learned my listening skills because I was working with engineers from Abbey Road Studios, engineers from Capitol Records. Producers like this great producer Oren Keep News, who's um, uh, an amazing jazz uh, producer, and that was the that was the heyday of CD reissues. Right. So so I got to learn from the best on both sides. So you know, like my most vivid memory is working on a uh, Beatles recording, and and um, and the engineers there, mastering engineer, and he's like, I'm hearing too much flutter in the noise reduction. I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, uh, I, I don't hear that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, you know, I was like 20, 
21, 22. And, uh, Tell me more about this flux. Yeah, yeah. What is it? Because it's unstable around 3.5K. Uh, hmm, yeah, what's that? You know? And the good thing was I wasn't embarrassed to, mm -hmm. to, to admit I, did, I couldn't hear something or didn't understand what they were talking about. So he was so cool. He's just like, all right, just listen to the whole song and only listen to the hi-hat. And so I just focus on the hi-hat, and by the end of the song, I could hear what he was talking about. I was hearing the noise, you know, breathe up and down around the hi-hat, and he's like, okay, that's what I'm talking about. i like, I'll be right back. And so then I go to Andy Moore, who is the, the lead um, software designer, and I'm like, Andy, we're hearing this this three and a half K flutter in the hiss. <laughs> Andy, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? You got to help me out. And uh, and so uh, at Stanford, of course, I had taken some signal processing classes, and and so uh, so I understood what. So Andy would draw me these curves, and he would show me the 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 multiband expansion curves, and and how that worked. And he goes, okay, so it was essentially the the. Um, the expansion curve was too steep is what the problem was. And so when you have all these bands, multiple bands, just fluttering up and down too quickly, that's what that was the cause. So I had to kind of slow those down. And um, so, I, so I go back downstairs. We were in, like in an apartment you know, uh, near the park, and it was so cool. Uh, and then uh, so I go back down. I know exactly what we need to do. We need to adjust the sharpness. So anyway, so then, so that's. But anyway, that gives you an idea of, of my process. I was young. I could, I really didn't. Even though I was musically trained, I wasn't trained as an engineer. But I got that training on the job there. And um, so after about four years, they decided to sell the equipment rather than provide a service. And that's when you know for. A, you know, for a year or so, I was okay, and it was it was kind of fun because I got to travel around the world. But um, but in the end, I wasn't really that happy with you know just uh, being a product specialist. I really wanted to be in there with the audio. So um, uh, one of the guys at MCA Records, uh, which is then became Universal Mastering, he also wanted to go out on his own. So we would talk all the time. So he and I, uh, his name is Doug Schwartz. And he and I started Audio Mechanics together. And um, what year was that? That was in '91. And um, oh, coming up on 30 years. Yeah, coming up on 30 years. Um, so that so and we started actually in my parents' house. Classic, um, classic yeah. uh, Silicon Valley success story. <laughs> so so we were there for like. I was like, I told my parents, oh, it'll only be about a year. We just need to find a place. And you know, sure enough. A year later, a year and a half later, two years, and my dad's like, "All right, you you got to get out of here," you know. <laughs> um, I mean, it was it was it was getting a little ridiculous because um, I mean, he he only charged us. He goes, "You just pay the electric bill and that's it." So we had you know, it's like cost us three hundred bucks a a month, you know. But eventually, he just he found um, real estate agents, and he's like. All right, I found these guys. They're gonna find you a place. You got to get out of here. Expect so, a call. Uh, yeah, and it, you know it's really ner it's really nerve wracking when suddenly you have to pay a lot of rent and and um, I was with Doug for about ten years and the the music industry really collapsed. Um, I was fortunate to get into the film side of things. Doug wasn't really interested in the film side of things. So ultimately we decided to just kind of part ways and he stayed with just um, music. And I kept on with the, the film side and I bought the name from him and, and it kind of went from there. Um, and 
I had wanted to get into the film side and I went to like one of the EMEA conference in San Francisco um, and I like met Scott McQueen who was at Disney at the time and I, I met um, Bob Gitt at UCLA. I introduced myself to, to them and you know they I, I was just a kid they didn't really you know um, they, I didn't make a, a, a an imprint on them, but then you were networking. You were was, do, you were yeah. doing what you had to do. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, the was, third time Bob Gitt has come up uh, on this podcast. So yeah, far. we're gonna have to do one with Bob Gitt <laughs> oh, because man. he's gonna have to cover. He's gonna have to speak for himself soon. Well, and as you're he, as you'll hear, he's he's like he's definitely my mentor. So, um, but um, so then I got a call from Scott McQueen, like you know, like about a year later. Um, saying, hey, I was told to find out who did the work on Pino the Pinocchio soundtrack. The higher-ups here are really upset because the soundtrack sounds so much better than the film, and, and, I, I, and I tracked you down through, um, through Disney Records. Because I, I did a lot of um, all the old soundtrack releases for them, Cinderella and Snow White wow. and Pinocchio. And so he tracked me down. He goes, are you interested in the film side? I go, yeah, but I'll tell you, I don't know much about it. And he goes, well, you can learn. And, and so the, the hardest thing, things for me to learn was synchronization, um, you know, just keeping sp audio speed. And then uh, obviously sync. I had no um, eye training with sync. Um, Which is really a curse once you acquire it. It is, yeah. <laughs> you know, really like watching is. television or something, I'm just like, oh man, I can't. And yeah, do with streaming, yeah. it's always off. It's just, ugh. yeah. And you know, back then, a picture reference was was a three quarter inch video, so you could. <laughs> it was really hard to, you know, training your eye on sync is is repetition, and it's really hard to 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 get that repetition with a when you're shift, you know, feeding videotape back and forth. Um, and then, and then just, then just the level standards was another thing that I wasn't listen, used to in music. The level standard was make it three dB hotter than last year. You know, right. you were right there at the height of the loudness wars. Right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. uh, so that was, so that was interesting. Like, oh, this is the way it should be. Like everybody should agree on a volume setting and, you know, <laughs> so, so that was a, a great thing. And then, and then learning the, um, like all the different formats and and how they should sound based on their eras, you know, so um, you know Academy pre-emphasis uh, for the opt for the early optical stuff knowing that What they did to the sound and knowing that and it was Scott McQueen who's who who said hey Do you have an Academy filter and I'm like what's that you know and and so then he uh, he got me in touch with Peter Orkinto from DJ Audio, who shoots a lot of track negatives. Another legend. Yeah, yeah. And Peter, like, hey, I, yeah, I'll give you, because he was working with, he and I were working together with Scott, and it's like, hey, I'll give you an Academy filter. So he actually gave me a couple of <laughs> he Academy gave you filters. One? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, I have this laying around. <laughs> yeah, I have. Here, it's a giant uh, box. <laughs> yeah, let me show. No, no, no. Here, I have like three or four. So this, this is it. Oh, that's all. Yeah, yeah. So it's just. Um, you know, Why do you, you keep it so close to you? It's like one of the first things you ever got. You're never gonna give it up. Yeah. Well, I used to. I used to use it a hundred for a hundred percent of the stuff I worked on. Just route the the sound through there because that's what the mixers did back then. They would listen through the curve. Um, but then at some point, it became easier to just you know simulate it in digital. Right. So so now I just simulate it in digital. Um, 
But um, yeah, so learning the Academy of Curve, and then and then Scott is the one who who said, you know, uh, you need to meet Bob Git. And uh, and I was thinking, yeah, I already met him. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'll meet him again. <laughs> I even sure, even when I came down to LA, I went to the UCLA um, Film and Television Archive and reintroduced myself to Bob because I saw his sound um, uh, at, in San Francisco. He gave his sound lecture, um, which I don't know if you've seen it, but he goes. Wow. He went through all the different sound formats and used, re, you know, film and showed you area and density and it's kind of like the uh, it's the um, Century of Sound Part One. Mm -hmm. It was it was sort of like a, a shortened version of that. And um, so, and I introduced myself to him after that in San Francisco. And then I and then I kind of forced my way over to the UCLA Film and Television Archive <laughs> and met him again. But he was he was already working with someone up in uh, uh, up at. Fantasy Records, who's somebody that I know, and he's a great guy, and so he's like, yeah, I already got someone up there, but then Bob, uh, Scott McQueen, like, told Bob, oh, you should try John, he's, he's really good, and, and so Bob came, and we worked on um, uh, the Louisiana story, and I think that's the name of it, and, yeah. uh, and that was it, Bob really liked me, and, and he liked my work, and, and so then Bob was really responsible for teaching me um, all the aesthetics of early sound, you know, optical sound, and and um, and how the um, how the mixers used to have to push 3,000 hertz in order to, in order to kind of penetrate the screens and get intelligibility because the screens weren't right. as acoustically transparent as they are now, and so um, so he taught he yeah he taught me a lot um, and. Um, and he would sit there with me through every single pop and click. Not really? many clients are that, you know. <laughs> it's very hands on, ears on. Yeah. And back that then. That sounds so boring, too. And he was really loyal to it. I oh, he loved it. He loved it because, you know, he used to do it all by hand. He would, he would scrape mag. You know, he would do sound restoration by copying the soundtrack to a 35 mag. And every time he'd hear, he'd hear a pop or click that was loud enough, he would scrape the oxide off. And that's how he did his... No is, way. Yeah, that's how you that's did click. wild. I mean, I yeah. thought it was wild when I learned that people redrew waveforms by hand. Oh, yeah. You know, to remove yeah. pops and clicks. I was like, that's tedious. Yeah. Like, that's next level tedious. That's next level. That's the only way you could do it back then, you know? I guess there were some analog sort of click suppressors and things. I mean, but... Sonic Solutions made some of them at that time, right? Oh, yeah. Sonic Solutions had uh, their, you know, their, their uh, automatic click remo removal is was definitely um, geared towards vinyl so mm -hmm. it really paid attention to the um, to the speed of the transient and so the higher f the frequency content the better it could detect the the clicks so gotcha. when it came to film to optical film it really didn't it didn't do as good of a job on the right. automatic side you know so even and and so you had to back off on the on the um, on the strength of the automatic pass because it would just dig in too much to other program. And, and so it became very, very m not as manually intensive as scraping oxide or, or redrawing the waveform <laughs> with the pencil, uh, but still it was very manually intense. Um, and you know, it would take sometimes a, a whole day just to do a reel of film. You know? Oh yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was Bob Gid, and 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 he was he was my biggest advocate for for years, both he and Scott, and but Bob, of course, worked with all the studios. So 
so I would work on projects that Bob was working on with you know Fox and Sony and and Paramount and Warner Brothers, and that's how I got to know the studios. Um, Which is the key to this the whole thing, really, because that's where all the work's coming from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, and then, and, and Fox really, uh, I think, appreciated me more than any of, the, any of the other studios, and I became their go-to for everything. Um, and to this day, I, you know, I do a lot of their work, and I do a big, it's on pause now because of COVID, but um, we're doing this big, sound uh film sound preservation going through their entire film sound library and just just doing dig managing digital preservation on that um, wow. and, and that's and that's really um that that project and also um i gotta give shout outs when i can um bob simmons at sony Bob Simmons at Sony really, you know, Ryan, you're talking about how detailed my reports are, yeah, you yeah. know, my restoration reports. It was really, it was mostly due to Bob Simmons at Sony because I'm going to send him a love letter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> prior, prior to him as a client, um, I didn't even, I didn't track anything. I mean, I learned how important labeling was, so I learned how important to put the timing notes on there and, and, and uh, where the peaks were, that sort of thing. That's all kind of typical stuff that you do in music as well. But what your sources were, the exact sources, not just it was an optical soundtrack, you know, but the exact barcode number or tracking numbers and and exactly everything that you used you know primary secondary you know all the sources there and um and what you did you know i did mm -hmm. hum removal i did de-clicking de-crackling de dropouts i helped distortion whatever it is that that really was that was bob he was like he looked at my first report he goes like no he goes, he goes well, i need to have the sources in there and i was like oh uh, uh, brilliant yeah, yeah of course you know <laughs> <laughs> let me be right back <laughs> yeah so i took i took his i took his um comments and i just took them to the nth degree whenever i could and i'm also a very techie guy you know i'm really into databasing and my whole business runs off of uh, filemaker database that i built from the ground up and so it integrates invoicing and element tracking and project tracking engineers work um, shipping uh everything we even and, and photographs um in fact when bob simmons one day he saw that i photographed every single element that came in he was he was proud he's like oh man after my own heart you know <laughs> like That's i love amazing. that you do that yeah so everything is tracked 100 percent, and and um and then i try to aut automate things wherever i can so so we have a, a marking system, marking convention in Pro Tools and the markers such that we can, when we import that into FileMaker, it just kind of automatically puts all the notes where they should go. Wow, um, that's amazing. I, uh, yeah. I wish you built our FileMaker database because it's I, Well, I built that one, Ryan. I'm sorry, Dennis. Oh, you're, you're the one responsible for I didn't for know it? anything about it at the time. And also, it's been 20 years since I touched it. So. I know, every time we've looked at revamping it, it's been a gargantuan project. that we've Everyone's been, like, yeah, oh. we'll do it later. Yeah, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the great thing about it, though, is, is you need a new layout, you just do it. You need a new feature, you just do it, you know? And so... so I just kind of build as I go, and the, and that Fox, the Fox um, Film Sound Preservation Project is really the most intense database program oh, programming that imagine. I've ever done. You know, because for that, what we do is they send us a spreadsheet of 
all the elements that they have on a title. And not just sound elements, but picture elements, paperwork, everything as a spreadsheet. And, um, and I import that into the database and then I have a, a script that goes through and just sorts through um, stuff that is n completely non-sound uh, and shoves that aside and stuff that's not feature like for example trailers and commentaries right. and things like that it shoves that all aside and then everything else that's contenders it divides that into two categories like things that we should pull in to look at and things that we should have on hold in case we still need them um, and then we go through that manually uh, and it ranks them too hierarchically so you know if it knows you put in that it's a, a 1957 film and originally it was an LCRS the mag mag era film then it knows okay i'm going to look for mag uh first and float that to the top and i'm going to look for stereo as opposed to mono most of the fox database it just call them stereo if they're you know four track they just call it four right. track stereo so just a stereo doesn't say it lcrs like prioritize like the vintage of the element like yeah so looking for more original elements versus yeah dupes. Yeah, so it looks for it looks at, at manufacturer dates if they're there. It looks it looks for everything and that that their metadata shows, and then it just kind of it just kind of ranks them, uh, and then we go through it by hand and make adjustments, and we check the the stuff that it we call it ignored that's that we want to have on hand just in case. We look at that, and sometimes we have to pull in things and like for example, like when we do um, mono DM and E mag titles you know, that's uh dialogue music and effects for yeah. those who don't know right thank you yeah so on on one on one piece of magnetic film there'll be three tracks dialogue music and effects and it has all the mixers moves so if you just recombine that that's the highest level of the final mix that you can get and that's so, what would be used to go out and create like an optical print master or something like that exactly exactly but there were times and more so as as we got into the dolby era but even in the even in the early mono days there there were times where the the even though that dmne master is supposed to 100 percent match the final mix it doesn't you know, and it's it's like I said, it's more like more subtle in the early days. Like maybe, you know, maybe a cue might get dumped a little earlier, or a sound effect might not be in there. Sound effect might not be in there, etc. So, <clears throat> so for those, so whenever we're working on a, a title where we have stems, we also try to find a vintage release print. That's so, smart. And I that, actually so ran that, into that recently with. Um, that Paul Schrader film we did uh, with Comfort Wall, of Strangers, Comfort of Strangers, where I had you know previous releases and everything comp tracks from Prince, and I also had a four track D M and E E oh, thing. Yeah. So it's magnetic, but with four tracks and two effects tracks. And in the creation of these release prints, they just eliminated the fourth effects track. So, so the prints weren't right. So they treated yeah. it as a three track master created prints from that or whatever. And, uh, you know, Paul Schrader always said, like, this just doesn't sound right. It's missing stuff, you know, and it really is. Uh. Like, it's set in Italy. And the fourth track is almost all pigeons. And if you've ever been to Italy, I know you have. Uh. <laughs> There's lots of pigeons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so it's just like suddenly this whole extra layer of ambiance is created by this fourth track that had never really been heard before, except wow. by Paul Schrader, who couldn't really put his finger on why it didn't, why these releases weren't right, why it never was mm. quite right. Wow, that's a great story. We come across this stuff all the time, don't we? All of us. I mean, picture, sound, whatever. It's like things that get thrown into a vault 
mislabeled or mismade and then they're archived and then you, we don't yeah. find out about it until somebody does a comparison. I, I think when I pulled yeah. the element, it was listed as D, like a three track mag too. And I was just like, all right, uh, cool. That's probably what I want. And then I got four tracks and I was like, what is this fourth track doing here? Wow. You know? Yeah. Cause no, 99% of the time it's the, it's the vintage print. That's right. And, and something's wrong with the, right. with the right. stem, right? This is the opposite. So that's, that's a great, that's a great story. I love to hear that. Um, yeah, so we so we do whenever we work from stems, we do a 100% uh, mix comparison, mix and content comparison against against a vintage uh, print, and mark all the differences, and and um, then we know what we need to, you know, what we're dealing with. And, you, and like I was saying, like usually when we get into the Dolby era, that's when it gets you know, a lot more crazy and you really have to pay attention because they were under the gun and, and they're like, okay, well, make sure you make sure you put that, you know, put that effect in or take that effect out of the stems or whatever. And then it would just get forgotten. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So the yeah. Dolby era, for those who don't know, would we say, uh, how would you define the Dolby era? So Dolby stereo is, uh, is a four track stereo format where you have left center, right and mono surround, and it gets encoded into a, into two channels um, and those that two channels of audio is called the left total right total and it sits on the on the uh, optical soundtrack and then when it's played back it goes through a decoder and that decoder then re -de decodes it back into four channels um, but it but, doesn't and, do it that well though I would uh, say. It's, well it did it for for at the time, time it was probably yeah yeah that yeah, was right. late 70s yeah, the, yeah I always love hearing the LCRS track when I can as compared to the LTRTD code, you know, because there's, you know, significant yeah. differences. There are significant differences. And that gets interesting too. So like if we ever have just the LCRS stems or I mean if we have like a six track, because sometimes they would go out as as LTRT and then there would be also a separate six track format, which would be, you know, for special theaters. For or special theaters. Like, like there would be something. Yeah, five across yeah. the front and then mono surround. And then the five across the front, the left center and the right center could either be used for extra effects or for for subwoofer information where they call them baby booms um, or or just for imaging you know just to have a, a tighter imaging depending on the film and the director and how did those um, sound were they good oh yeah those always sound really great they almost always sound great and in fact on um, on alien there was a six track on that I, I hope I'm getting it the right Alien, if it was Alien or Aliens, the second one. Not Alien 3. No, no, one, it wasn't. No one likes to talk about. So. Yeah. The first two, yeah. the, the, that's where, come on. Yeah, but, um, but one of those, I could look it up, but we used the six track you know, for, for the sub, because the, they used um, them for baby booms, and so we used that for the LFE track. And cool. um, yeah, and, and, but, the, but the, the four track stems had a little bit better um, resolution. So, so you combine using, yeah. using both to get the best track. And do you, when you do a movie like Alien, do you bring in originals, sound people or filmmaker or the director? Yeah. Or? yeah, they didn't come here, but they definitely approved on the other side, on the Fox side. And and uh, and in fact, there were that was a really complicated one because they were changing the mix every day. So wow. and they say prior to the release of the film, you mean? Yes, prior to the re to the release of the film, there were changes, and they were not insignificant changes like one of the big changes was the the sort of the ba the the uh, the background sound of the spaceship you know had a lot of uh, in some mixes had very little lfe in it and then other mixes that had more lfe in it and that was i remember that was one of the one of the um 
one of the talking points on feedback that we got was like, I, they're like, I think you used the wrong mix <laughs> oh, for no. this reel. Yeah, and 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 because um, we went, you know, we went through. I think there was maybe four or five different mixes that we evaluated, and you know, you, the thing to do is, if they're not marked master, um, the thing to do is you just take the la the latest date, right? Right. You know, and that's got to be the one. Um, and I, my memory is not the greatest, so you'll have to excuse me. But but I just remember, I, I believe that's what we did. But then the, the issue was, no, that's that's for reels one through four. That was the wrong. Uh, that was the wrong version. So oh, we had to man. go back and, and redo that. Yeah. And thank goodness, right, that there's people who... Totally. Who, who we don't always have that. Yeah, yeah they're seriously. alive to speak and offer their opinion and expertise and knowledge about the whole thing. Yeah. I, so I had a uh, great time, speaking of, like, uh, approval and, um, you know, LCRS tracks, with um, David Byrne on True Stories. Oh, I love that sounded that great, by the way. It sounded oh, really good. Yeah, yeah, I was really proud of it, and uh, I really like one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, I just have adored that. Plus, movie. you were nerv a little nervous working with a talking head and all that. And I was so excited. I mean, he is like a hero to me, you know. Um, yeah. But um, you know, it was originally LTRT released LTRT, and it, the LTRT track really didn't sound very good. It was kind of shrill, um, and so I started looking. You know. I, Another thing I wanted to touch on is just how much of our jobs, both picture and sound, is spent, is like pouring over databases and trying to find elements and that kind of stuff. And I don't—it's the least sexy part of the job, but maybe the most crucial. Anyway, oh, yeah. um, I was like, I found this LCRS track, and, and it was kind of this mystery track, but it was from the right era, and so I got it, transferred it, and everything brought it in, and it was really cool. It was a straight up LCRS, you know, uh, mix of the film, um, but it was an M and E, so there's no dialogue. So I uh, combined a mono dialogue stem that I had from a, another track, a th three-channel DME mag, with that to kind of create a comp track and compared them. And I was playing it for David Byrne in my office, which was like one of the greatest days of my professional career ever. It's like I spent all day in my office with David Byrne watching yeah. True Stories and having him make tweaks and stuff. But there were a couple really like wild differences. And the first song in it, Wild Wild Life, Wild Differences in Wild Wild Life, um, in the LCRS track, had this synthesizer that kind of like, you know, just this buzzing sweep that kind of panned all the way around the room. And it's not in the LCRT track at all. Ah. Also in that, in that song, the tambourine part was inverted. So what's on the, you know, LTRT track, there's, when there's tambourine on the LTRT track, there's no tambourine in this M&E track, this LCRS. And when there is tambourine on the LCRS, there's none in the LTRT track. Wow. It's totally opposite. It was so weird. Yeah. And so I was showing him this and everything, and he was like, well, I think it's pretty cool. I, you like it? And I was like, yeah, I think it's cool too. He's like, okay, let's go with it. So he like was totally cool with, you know, presenting this different version. You know, the sweeping synth is the most dramatic one, which just comes at wow. you and goes all the way out. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. It was so cool. He was like, no, I like it. I think it's cool. All right, let's do it. And that's one of the great things about getting to work with the actual director or something, you know. Yeah. It's much more difficult when they're not alive, though. That's the, that's the harder part. Yeah, yeah. But it is great when you have, when you have that input because otherwise you have to try to make a decision yeah yeah make a decision and, and or or just and uh, and default to staying true to the release you know right um and the era too i so often yeah. think about like what you're saying you know that this is how this element would have sounded at this time and thus i will make decisions based to make it sound like that you know this yeah. other body of knowledge you know yeah your decisions yeah 
Um, I, so I was my, one of my cool stories is working on Night of the Living Dead. Oh and, yeah, that's um, a, that was awesome. And George Romero was here, and and I I went through the went through all his notes here with him and and his um, uh, his original sound guy uh, Gary Striner, uh, uh, Steiner Striner. Sorry, Gary. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, he was the original sound guy, and he—he was—he is the best. See, he came out here, and he and I went through it together. We had—we had all the original quarter-inch masters. We had the—we um, had the, the the stems, but it wasn't complete on 16 millimeter. They had a really strange, or you know, I mean wasn't strange it was just it was a budget workflow right so everything was on 16 and i think i forget what we were missing we we're missing like some a dialogue stem or something so we couldn't we couldn't go all the way back to stems but we had the music and we had the effect stems and um so the cool thing was there's there's shots where you know just again due to the due to the um uh, nature of the production and and they're they're kind of getting it done as quickly as they can. Some, like there's some scenes where there's a interior shot and you've got um, no crickets and then it's, and then just a different angle and all of a sudden there's crickets, right? And I saw this going, in your sound report, right? in your restoration report. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, crickets. okay, yeah, great. Yeah. The cricket section, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, totally. <laughs> yeah, and so, and George wanted to fix that. He's like, no, we got, we, let's, let's make that better. Let's, you know, let's uh, even that out. And it's like, that's so cool because you know it's something that I would never have done, being my own decision. Even a studio wouldn't do that, right? No, absolutely but, not. But when, but when the director's there, saying, "Yeah, let's fix that. Let's make it better," is great. And then there are a couple of couple of like gore effects and scream effects that he wanted to enhance too. And and um, so that was that was a great time. Um, and then like uh, a lot of the music was. The dynamics of the music was very low dynamics in the original mix as well, and so we were able to make the dynamics a lot, a lot better too. Um, just louder when it needed to be louder, um, which they didn't do that in the original mix either. But wow, but, so you're um, like riding faders in it. Yeah, yeah, cool. and all blessed, you know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. there, you know, th apparently there was a secondary reason for doing that as well. Like the story of that film is because they didn't put a copyright on the release print, it went into public domain right away, and and that's also part of how the film itself became so famous was because everybody used it at, um, as as a public domain so it was this it was this double-edged sword and this ironic thing where you know he didn't make any money on that film at all because it became public domain immediately but yet it also became this cult classic film and it really is an amazing film i'm not into that genre at all yeah i love it too and when, i feel the same way oh man when i when i watched that after like the third time i was like this is so deep on so many levels and yeah, I was, that's I was, the thing it works yeah and the fact that they made the, the the main character black i mean there's just so many amazing things yeah. about the, the fact that of when it was made and i asked i said hey did did you was that a conscious decision to make the main character a black character and like no he was just the best the best actor for the <laughs> which job. is exactly the which answer is, you want to hear which is awesome yeah like yeah. that's exactly <laughs> the answer you want to hear but you know but now looking at it through our eyes you know we see like we 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 put all this social you know uh social right. meaning into it too which which works as well but so getting back to the mix like because it was became public domain he didn't make any money on it changing the mix also enabled them to 
re-copyright ah, the mix, ah. right? So, um, and, be, and to be able to make money off of it. Um, and I think probably there was maybe some things they did picture-wise too. I'm not sure because I don't know the picture side, but definitely that enabled them to, um, to finally- Like regain ownership that. of the- Yeah, regain ownership, yeah. Sadly, he, didn't, he died not too long after yeah, that, so. I know. Yeah, but at least he got to do it with you and it's out there now. And I like the fact that filmmaker gets put their stamp on the restoration before they leave the world because, I mean, you know, we always want them to see it or hear it. And, you know, we, Ryan and I talk about that all the time. Like, uh, you know, when we, when we don't have anybody to talk to, what are we going to, how are we going to get it? You know, is it Lee or Ryan approved or is it, I mean, what, how do you, how do you take it to that point? And, you, you know, you just have to like go easy on what you change and, hope for the best i always try to think like well they probably didn't like that hiss so they would have liked to have that removed yeah. but when when we worked on this film last year at marion bad we didn't have that luxury of the director saying oh yeah yeah i'd prefer not to have the, the guy was alive and when we spoke with him he wanted the hiss and the crackle to be there because that's the way he remembers hearing the movie no oh, that's so cool. But yeah, it's really and he neat. was alive to tell us this, so yeah. that was a different story. So yeah. for that one, we actually released both a you know traditionally restored track, faithfully restored, but uh, also a totally unrestored transfer from a print wow. at his request. You know, because the hiss and the crackle, you know, just you know, sort of like the nostalgia that I think people have for like dirty vinyl, you know, became part of the essence of the history of the film to him. So you can listen to it restored or unrestored. That's Was great. Was it the easiest restoration you ever had to do? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's still concerns with that, right? You don't want it to blow up anybody's speaker when there's a giant <laughs> thump or something, but, uh, you know. Well, th that's interesting you mentioned thumps, too, because it gets into, like, the aesthetics of how it should sound and what people could hear back then versus what we can hear now with our modern equipment. Like our modern speaker, amplifier, playback equipment is, it, it has so much better frequency response and so much better dynamic range. Um, and back then, like not, they didn't hear much under 100 hertz, right? So- yeah. um, Or above so, 8K. Yeah, and nothing, nothing really above 8K. So, so when you talk about thumps, they never heard those things. They yeah. never heard thumps, right? So I, so it's totally okay to, to like there's there's optical era films going back to the early 30s where you can hear the dialogue splicing. You know, they they would splice optical dialogue tracks together, and you hear thump, 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 uh, yeah. you know, on every single cut. Well, that wasn't heard. So it's cool. It's it, like some people say, no, you can't touch that. That's that's an artifact of the editing. And it's like, yeah, but they never heard it. So it's okay. You want yeah, to and I doubt they wanted it either. Right. You want to present it in the best light, like as close to the way it would have sounded back then, like a brand new print in in a really good theater back then. Mm, right? Totally. So, that's like that. And, and that's sort of the, the the aesthetic side of it. Like how did. How was it heard, you know? And obviously it's very subjective, but, um, but fortunately we have people who, who were able to, to at least teach me, you know, how it, how it sounded. I know a guy who's gone so far as to try to make a project or a database out of getting impulse responses from vintage theater equipment to try to model frequencies that a given speaker, a model, this whatever, electro voice, whatever, from yeah. 1940, what that sounded like yeah. in the room, you know, to take that idea of representing a movie from a you know, bygone era 
in its most authentic state. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a really fascinating idea. I don't know how practical it is ultimately, but <laughs> I do think it gets at something that you were talking about that's really crucial is the difference between modern expectations for what a film sounds like and a you know more purist or, or recreating the way that a film would have sounded with inferior quality you know equipment. And I think one area that I always struggle with is in the high end because especially on mags but even on optical tracks you know there's a lot of information up there that would never have been heard back in the day but when we transfer these elements you know suddenly you can hear it and I, I wonder yeah. what's your take on how you represent that do you strictly adhere to the academy curve or uh, do you feel well, like that information was recorded on set and well, I, yeah, that, that is a really good question. I, I do listen to everything through, if it was an Academy Curve show, I listen to it through an Academy Curve. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm listening to it to the way the mixers were listening to it. And mm -hmm. so, but if I can squeak a little bit more fidelity out of it, I'm going to, you know, but there's not going to be right. much above 8K. But then obviously when you get into, say, the... Um, LCRS, like the four track stereo, where they where they were playing it back without an academy of curve. Right. You know, then it's like, okay, then they were just kind of limited by the listening environment they were in. You know, and in all almost every case, like the recording media typically surpasses the playback, you know, exactly, environment. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of to your point. But but yeah, so when it comes to um, mag born material, then I will try to make sure I get maximum fidelity out of it yeah cool that's that's how i feel too i agree yeah there's a couple things i still want to touch on that i think are unique to your work and audio mechanics you know um and maybe we could just briefly get the, at them through talking about the process by which film is film audio is restored you know we don't need i don't need to know the brand of your a to d to a to converter anything like that but yeah um, well, what is the brand of your <laughs> I bet it's awesome. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I use the Pro Tools IOs, the HDs, and then I also use uh, um, Gen X. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have some Gen X converters, and then and then uh, on the A to D side, um, I have some Laveries. But but yes. sometimes when you get into like multi-channel. A to D, you have to go, you, you know, I, I can't, I don't have enough of that. So we go with the Pro Tools HDIO. And, it gets very expensive uh, very quickly. Yeah. And another uh, one that I love, though, that I, I like to use whenever I can is the Metric Halo Box. Oh, those um, are amazing. Yeah, yeah. Super clean. And, and I just, in fact, I just... Sorry to get nerdy on you, but no, the um, diversion for the tech geeks is very important. No, baby. I love Metric Halo gear. I think it <laughs> if I stop but, this now, it would never be forgiven. But no, they, they, I just I just have my my Metric Halo boxes up upgraded to their latest uh, hardware version, which is they mm -hmm. call 3D or something like that. And they run, you know how Dante Audio runs on Ethernet cable, but it's mm -hmm. you know it's limited. Um, so this 3D thing, they, they run all their, they run everything on over Ethernet. It's their own proprietary format, but it's just, it's insane. Like you can, I can run audio all over the, all over the place, and uh, it just sounds so clean and so good. And anyway, um, so, but we were talking. What were we talking? Yeah, totally. Sorry, let's preamps back. are cool too. <laughs> yeah. All right. Anyway, so let's just talk briefly about the process by which you know, sound goes in, sound comes out of audio yeah. mechanics. You know. Yeah. Okay. Sure. 
Uh, because I don't, I feel like a lot of people, you know, don't really. The part of, the, I guess, the mission of the podcast is to, you know, hopefully let people know how these movies that they're hopefully enjoying are restored and how they, you know, make, what goes into it. Yeah, make yeah it from yeah. a piece of film in a vault all the way to. Because right people now, really don't home. know how that sound gets on that thing yeah. you're listening to. Yeah, I yeah. mean, really, really, the most important thing, and and Ryan, you touched on it earlier, is the research, right? You want to make sure that you have the highest generation, the closest thing to the original master or the original master, obviously, that that you can find. So, um, unless you know what you're expecting that should be, you're not going to find it, too, right? Right. And and um, so. A good example would be, well, I can think of two examples. Um, one is there's a movie called The Legend of Foggy Bottom, and um, it's an independent film, and uh, the, fi the filmmaker's daughter came to me to restore it, and um, it was like a G-rated horror movie, and it became a huge success um, in the 70s, but no one ever really knows about it, right? And I forget the reasons for that. But uh, anyway, so she, so she sent me uh, what she had on it or what she thought she had on it. And there was like an optical print and there was, you know, she's like, I have the original optical prints. And I'm like, okay, good, good. And the whole time I'm thinking, I just need, I just need to find a, a DM&E mag, you know? <laughs> right. And, uh, um, and so, so she sent me everything and I just told her, I said, you know, there's, there really should be a 35 millimeter mag on this. And um, I kept pushing and pushing. Um, this happened on Night of the Living Dead too. Like well, I was like, I kept pushing and, and that was done with, uh, with MoMA. And, and I think at some point, like everybody was getting a little annoyed at me because I was pushing so hard to find better elements. But I don't want to start on something unless I know I've exhausted everything. And in both these cases, Night of the Living Dead and Foggy Bottom, we actually, did finally find what I was, you know, was I, what I was expecting to find, or something close to it. And so she finally found the original 35 millimeter DM&E stems for it, and, um, and it changed everything. I mean, the the noise difference between optical sound and magnetic sound huge. is it's huge. It's like SD right? to HD, you know. It's yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's a big, big difference. So. Um, so we found those, and and they were a little bit vinegared, but we were able to get through it. Um, and you guys and don't bake tapes, right? You don't. Well, you do not bake uh, acetate um, mag, right? Right. So uh, because it will it will destroy it, and then polyester mag um, usually doesn't have an issue, although it can. We could get into that if you want, but there's a thing called sticky polyester that we that we've um, discovered, and. Um, yeah, so that changed everything. So, so the first thing is the research. Try to find um, the most original elements um, that you know there should be. And sometimes it just doesn't exist. I mean, this was a this was an independent film. Who, you know, everything was stored in her father's garage. You know, and and it was just by chance that that they had it. But you know, could have could have been they didn't have it. You know, um, yeah. like on Night of Living Dead, they just couldn't find the dialogue stems. It just they just could not find them. They were lost. This happens a lot too for people who don't know this. This we're missing a lot of things sometimes we have to make do. And that's always the hardest part is just wishing that you could find this you know it had to be made because it made yeah. what you you're using at the moment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And at some point, obviously, you have to get the job done. So you you yeah. you push as as long as you can, and then you just give up. Um, 
So anyway, so, so that's the first step. Second step is to assess the physical condition, or if you have multiple contenders for the most original source, um, that which happens a lot, you might have two, two different elements, or sometimes the, the best element might be missing a reel or might have damage in the section, so you'll need an alternate source to cover that. So then it becomes evaluating the physical condition of it, making sure that it's in good shape to be able to transfer. Um, and sometimes you need to, you need to treat it. Sometimes, you know, for example, on optical sources, you might need to repair splices on it. Um, on 35 millimeter mag, you might need to repair splices. You might need to clean them because they're, they have vinegar syndrome. Um, and you might need to make sure you're playing it back on a special machine that can handle the warpage that happens with vinegar syndrome. So, so you have to take all these things into account and just make sure you're using the best equipment for the element that you have. Um, and, and by best equipment, that means the best analog equipment and making sure that that is calibrated correctly to the, uh, to the element that you're playing back, you know? Um, and so for example, sometimes the, the magnetic head when they recorded could have been that it was slightly misaligned because, you know, in this case, maybe it was an, ind it was an independent film. And so they hadn't recalibrated their back recorder. And, and so the head was a little bit askew. And so you have to, that's called azimuth, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so you have to, even though your head might be perfectly aligned for a perfectly calibrated machine, you might need to uncalibrate your machine <laughs> slightly to get the best results for the media that you're playing back. And, and if you don't do that, you're, you're really, you might as well not even start also because you're disadvantaging yourself. Just like if you, just like with finding the best material, if you don't find the best material, you're disadvantaging yourself. So if you don't have the best equipment and, and calibrate it properly, it's a disadvantage. And so much goes in the preparation because um, once you're in the digital world, yeah, the digital tools are great and you can, um, take care of a lot of things and more and more we can take care of even more issues, but it's always better to start with that mistake corrected in the analog world. Um, yeah, uh, so, uh, so we do that, get, get the material uh, into the digital world and we use 96 kilohertz 24 bit for all of our captures and we do all our restorations that way. And that's a kind of an ir irony too, because you know, all the A, all A titles, uh, new films are done at 48 kilohertz, right? And they have better, better fidelity than these old masters, but yet we insist on, on being, you know, <laughs> nerds. I mean, every, everybody in the archival community is this way, right? I'm not, I'm not, uh, audio. We always up, we have up res. We have yeah. to, we have we over res. Sorry. We yeah. over res as high as yeah. we can. So we're doing 96 kilohertz and certainly for optical, it's, it's, we think way too, way overkill, yeah, way, but, way, but way overkill, but we do it anyway. Cause yeah, cause I honestly think that like, a lot of my digital tools work better at higher sample rates though as well, you know? Well, it's yeah, I think there's something to that too, for sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, so once we get everything into the digital world, um, and we also get our picture reference, um, the first thing that, that we do is we line it up to picture, make sure, and we just do a, like a rough lineup. We don't do like, like very close sync. We just kind of do a rough lineup every reel and then we will watch it all the way through and spot it make sure our content is covered and then wherever the wherever there are issues we make sure that the alternate source can cover it correctly too so it's just it's just let's get an overall uh 
view a global picture of where we are because um, back in the when I first started doing this stuff, I would just go in, you know, dig in microscope right away, and mm -hmm. then you'd get to the end, to like the middle of the last reel, and you needed an alternate source, and then you're calling the client, hey, I need an alternate source, <laughs> right, and right. it's like almost too late, you know, because yeah. there's the deadline, right? They thought you were good. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned, I learned early on. Let's just. Let's just let's just figure this out right away, and it also gives you a a, a good idea financially if if um, the customer's budget is good enough to get the job done well, or if you need to ask for more money, or you know sometimes there's trade-offs, you know. Sure. Um, so then after that's done, let's let's go let's go like with the hardest type of restoration, which was with optical soundtrack, right? So then so um, we get all our alternate sources in, we get get everything lined up and then the first thing that that uh, I do is I deal with all the pops and clicks. I, you I do it personally? I, yeah. Well, um, I used to. Now now I have guys. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but it's interesting because uh, well that used to be the most time consuming part. It still is very time consuming, but it's gotten better as as our computers have gotten faster and and automatic uh, processes have gotten better. It's it's gotten easier to do, um, for sure. but um, in general, I try to make sure that all the technical stuff gets done first. So all the technical stuff being put it in perfect sync first, actually, before I do the pops and clicks. So I make sure it's in perfect sync um, on a scene by scene basis, and then uh, and then I t tackle the next what I consider the next technical thing, which is the pops and clicks. So pops and clicks and dropouts and big issues, um, time related issues, uh, mm -hmm. anything that you can that can be technically removed without uh, without a subjective um, uh, alteration to the material. Absolutely, yeah. removing um, the vestiges and, of age or. Whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so all that gets done: dropouts and thumps and crackles and and um, uh, distortion is such an odd thing that I save that till the end because that's a hard one. It's a hard one, and there's trade-offs involved, and and so so that's that's one of those things I save till the end. Um, and um, so then I, then I tackle all the aesthetic stuff, subjective stuff. Um, all at the same time because everything's everything affects everything else. So history reduction, um, if you have to go a little more aggressive with history reduction, it can affect EQ. So you want to do the EQ. EQ is adjusting frequencies um, and uh, and make sure the levels are right because if the levels are too low, that affects how you perceive hiss as well. You know, so all of these things interplay with each other. And and if it's too loud, obviously then then you're going to hear more hiss and you might be too aggressive with hiss. So um, so tackling all that um, all that at one time so I'll get I'll like go through and I'll, I'll set up um, sort of my my starting points for music and my starting points for dialogue sections and I'll just kind of get a feel for it and then I'll and then I'll start going through in real time and uh, for, you know because a lot of that now is real time hiss reduction and of course all the EQ and sometimes multi-band dynamics I need to be involved and and there is an ex there are exceptions to the to the rule as always. Sometimes I have to do like one layer of hiss reduction as light as I can before I go and do a sort of a beauty pass on hiss reduction. Um, but but in general, I try to do everything all that in in real time. Uh, yeah, that's one thing that I, I think yeah. people don't like 
realize about a lot of film restoration, both picture and sound, that so much of it is in real time or, you know, one twenty-fourth of a second time, you know, that and it's yeah. an actual person making the decisions at that time. Drawing something, basis. yeah. Yeah, you know, that it really does require, it's still ultimately to get the best results, it requires a person's attention and decision-making in real time. You know, you can't simply push a button that says, you know, Make it sound good, like those one-knob plugins or whatever. You know, yeah. it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, anyway. it's so. Yeah, it's true. It's so rare that that you can get your one setting and just and never change it through the entire right. film. It just doesn't happen. You know, the hiss hiss levels change, um, levels change. Uh, that can be for many reasons. It could be one reel was printed lighter than another reel, and so you really do have to have to make those those changes in real time and and um, and it's interesting too because some there are times when and less and less now but there's times when I get done with the whole film and but you know by the middle of the film you're really feeling it you know you really yeah. you know and by the end you're like gosh I got I, I want to go redo the first reel because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel so much better about where I'm at now that happens with the picture again. too yeah, yeah definitely yeah. yeah I'm also uh, I firmly believe movies should be 90 minutes or less so that's just <laughs> would be great. Is that just just for your workflow purposes? Exactly. I swear that when I get to like, you know, whatever two hours and fifteen minutes, my brain is mush. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's anyway. pretty great. I, I had one the other day that was I was grading it, and um, for some reason I thought it was like ninety something minutes, and like seventy seven minutes in, it was like they faded out, and I was like. Am I missing a... What, what, hold on a minute. Oh, no. Where's the rest of the movie? And I was like, it's the end. Yay, this was such a gift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, what? one of the things, like... Uh, I don't know. In, in our industry, there is a lot of mystique around sound and a lot of... Um, I don't know about, I wouldn't say misunderstanding, but a lot of people really don't understand sound and, and like, you know, what goes into it. And so I always try to just draw a, a metaphor with color grading, right? When I do my mastering pass, you know, which is, which is adjusting EQs and levels and things like that, it's, it's what, the, it's what the, the color timer does when they go through and, and color grade, you know, adjusting the brightness, which is like level and the color is like equalization, bass and treble and mid frequencies and yeah. making sure that they're, making sure that they're all pleasing to the ear, you know, and, and um, so it really is a one-to-one coral, uh, -one corollary. It's just that, um, you know, picture is, uh, our eyes, there's so much of our brain uh, is is dedicated to vision. We understand vision instantly, right? And um, whereas we don't understand sound. And, and um, I think until you listen critically for years, um, you don't, you're not going to understand, you're not going to understand maybe some of the technical differences that say Ryan and I would hear in something, um, but you would enjoy it better and you wouldn't yeah, know definitely. why. You know? I, think, I think what you're saying is that color grading is a lot easier. <laughs> I think that's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is a good place to end. <laughs> I'm so glad we get to team up on Lee here. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. So then once I'm done, like, and during that I make, I make notes about, clicks that were missed or dropouts that were missed. So, you know, little, little time things that have to be corrected. And so after I finish my pass and I go through and do those notes and then the client comes in and, and uh, when, when we do the, the client review, that is the first time, if it's a movie I've never seen before, that I finally understand what the movie's about. 
because what I'm distracted by all the things you could be doing, right? Yeah. I mean, when I'm listening, I'm listening to frequencies. I'm not listening to content. I know it sounds weird. No, it's true. Even when I'm watching sync, I'm, I'm, I'm watching this and correlating it with what's going in the right. ear. Totally. And, and I can't, some movies, I can't even tell you what they're about when I'm done working on them. I so, honestly think it's sometimes easier to work on movies in a language that I don't understand, which is all of them except English, uh, because I don't <laughs> get distracted by the story. You know, like it's oh, so yeah. easy to get, if I'm watching a linear thing, I'm like, what's going to happen next if I understand oh. what's happening, you know? But, yeah, yeah, I don't get distracted at all. I just t- I tune it out. I'm like really, uh, I'm very for better or for worse, uh, for worse in some social situations. Uh, but I'm very good at just tuning out, you know, and, and I think you have to be, yeah. it's funny like to work with certain filmmakers, at least with color grading. Uh, I know like for instance, Jim Jarmusch, you, you cannot have the sound on while you uh, review anything, never. And oh, then there's other filmmakers that will insist that you have the sound and they won't even do the work without it. And then I have noticed sometimes I worked with this one filmmaker on a, a Derek Jarman Jar, Jar, film and the, the guy, um, I was like, what do you think of that? And he was like, not listening to me. And I said, well, what do you, what do you think of that? And I said, excuse me, Peter. And he said, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was caught up in the film. And I was thinking, you weren't even looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to ask you about the color like five times. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but fortunately, most, uh, I'd say 99% of our clients, like, are passionate about what we're doing, too, right? And, they are. And so they're really... A lot of them are just so happy to be there to, like, finalize. And there's other people that don't care, and they yeah. just let you do what you need to do. But the, yeah. the ones that do care, I think they're really happy Yeah. that they're yeah. given this last chance. I remember Peter Weir told me, um, he said he used to not want to come in for, like, the mix or the... This was for for remastering, for like the the, the remix of the sound or the, the the color grading. But then he said, you know, I just realized that this is the only way people are watching the movies now. So if I don't do this part, I'm not being responsible for my own art. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I have, I have one uh, I think is a hilarious story. But this is in the music industry, though, and this was like in my early days. And this producer came over. We were mastering a record that he produced, right? And um, and and I'm working and he's he's off you know he's off to the side and he's working on I don't know he's doing his bills or something I don't know he just wasn't he wasn't paying attention so and there came a point where I had to ask a subjective question you know that that needed his input so I'm like hey uh, what do you think of this do you want it this way or this way and I don't I don't remember what the issue was but it's definitely a subjective thing and I thought it was his job to make the call. And he's like, and he says to me, this is almost word for word. He goes, this man, I don't know. I just make records. You figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. And I was like, all right. Okay. I see where we're going here. Yeah. Yeah. We're not making records anymore, are we? No. Uh, no. We're not making records. Hilarious. <laughs> That's amazing. So I'm just like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what I think is best and and move on. You know? Yep. All right, got it figured out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, this was fun, John. Thanks for uh, talking to us. Yeah, yeah I really sure. appreciate your time. It's great to get to chat with you. I think it's been. I only met you maybe a couple times, but it was like years ago at Amia or something. Yeah, at Amia. Did you? Yeah, did, remember those? Yeah. yeah. Did you guys happen to? hop online for the virtual Mia? Mm-mm. No. Yeah. It was good. It was good. Yeah, it was good. That's good. Yeah. I'm glad because, you know, I don't want to see all these things disappear. I'm worried that 
some things just won't come back. No, I think we're learning. You know, we've we've learned how to do it virtually, and I think it was in general. I think it was very very positive, and um, and uh, so now I think in a way it'll it could make things better you know when we come back to in person if we can integrate the two and kind of have a hybrid of some type then people who just can't are too far away could could still come and enjoy the conference you know totally yeah, yeah. we're all conditioned to you know watching videos and remote whatever these days anyway so i do yeah, think squares yeah. on your screen yeah, yeah, even even archival screening night was great because there was like a technical problem and and there's a chat box there so and everyone's just everyone's just hooping and hollering on the chat box <laughs> having a great time and it was like it, you almost felt like you were there with everybody it was pretty cool yeah that's yeah. awesome yeah. cool well um, we'll let you know when it's up and okay. um, yeah we'll uh, we'll talk to you maybe we'll do another one of these one day okay cool yeah, yeah thanks great. a lot John yeah, yeah thanks welcome. John.